You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening and welcome to the Agony Column. Tonight on the Agony Column, we have Alan Shoes live in the studio. He's a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest book collection is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. He'll be appearing Wednesday at Capitola Book Cafe at 7.30 p.m. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. Alan, uh, this book, I have to say, uh, thank you with this book because you've completely annihilated all my preconceptions about what travel writing would be like. I read this book and went, what? Is this what travel writing's like? Is it really? What did you think? Well, I thought you'd, you'd take us to some kind of foreign place or mm-hmm. and city and say, here's the market, here's, mm-hmm. here's the seashore, here's the scenic locale, here's the historic monument. But instead, what you give us is a, a series of essays that are... are really uh, about all sorts of different kinds of travel, and not much of it has to do with uh, walking through foreign cities. Well, it may be that your uh, devotion, which I strongly uh, feel, uh, to science fiction has caused you to read too many Lonely Planet volumes. (laughs) There there is a kind of travel writing, of course. It's practical, you know, the practical guide to, you know, life on the Bosphorus and all of that. But travel writing... As I understand it, you know, if you go all the way back to Herodotus, who, who in the middle of the, his, the history of the, the uh, Greco-Persian War takes us on a tour of the uh, exotic coast of the Mediterranean, the, the Egyptian and the coast, and, and takes us through a number of very odd and fascinating societies. In fact... A lot of them would appear to be science fiction. <laughs> and, the, and, and, you know, he's not only creating the, the science of history there, as, as uh, he understood it. He had a teacher named Hecateus who laid down some rules, but Herodotus really writes it in a vivid way for, for the first time in the history of the West. He talks about who, who these people are, what they look like, what they eat, um, how they live. I mean, they're, they're, and and he gets to a point where he says, "Now, what I'm going to say was told to me by another party. I can't vouch for this. There's a tribe that lives at the bottom of a mountain, and they only have one name. Then there's a tribe that lives at the top of that same mountain, who never, never dream, and that's the only thing we know about them. Um, wow, they so, never dream. So there's I this, love that. There's this um, wonderful." Uh, essential, I guess you have to call it uh, fictional side to travel writing, which means um, the soul is involved in a certain way. Uh, You have to engage a reader in the story and you do that, I think, by creating a a persona, um, someone like you, um, your better self, perhaps. Um, You know, we can't be our better selves in life, but we can be our better selves sometimes in, in prose. And that's the traveler who sees into the the heart of various scenes of cultures around the world. Um, and it allows you to develop a practice that uh, 
sometimes, if you're lucky, gives you insight into where you actually come from. So I go to Bali. In this book, I go to Bali. I go to New Zealand. I go to Mexico. Um, but I also go back to my hometown in New Jersey and try to get the essence of, of uh, the life that I once lived there. That's a, a piece called the elbow of called elbow of land and you're from perth amboy new jersey Mm -hmm. and and i love this piece because you travel not just in a place but you you travel in time and i think that's an interesting way to travel more science fiction more science fiction (laughs) (laughs) i know people out there saying what kind of a travel business (laughs) i'll stick with lonely planet but um you know, I, I, I try to, uh, you know, we all live a narrative life mm-hmm. and, and writers basically make uh, palpable the narrative that most people live. Uh, you, you wake up in the morning and you do various things and you get through the day and go to sleep at night. But you don't just do that uh, by the numbers. You do it because you're deeply involved in a narrative action. You want to be a a better person so you're working in a in a factory or a fast food place in order to save the money for school so you can become a scientist i mean there's your dramatic action uh or you're trying to help your two small kids grow up to be have a better life than you did um or you are working very hard to get the hottest car in the neighborhood so you can get girls i mean you know every everybody has a narrative so uh what writers do when they go to other places or places other than where we normally live is is create a narrative and uh, try to get the essence of the place they visit and the essence of where their narratives intersect with the narrative that comes to them from the place and that's uh, I think that's really the best travel writing that I know D.H. Lawrence uh, in in some of his travel essays uh, Basically, they're personal essays about him in other countries. In, in uh, Sea and Sardinia, for example, that, that collection, uh, you know, he gives, he, he says, basically lays down a kind of working rule for writing about a place other than something that's familiar to you. He says, you go there for a week and you write a, an essay or a book about it, or you stay there for two to five years and you write a book about it, but, you know... Uh, Staying there six months or may, or almost a year doesn't really work for that Laurentian spirit. You go in, you get the essence of it somehow, and and you bring it back to the reader. It it strikes me, and I, I never thought of it this way, but uh, travel writing is just a kind of a, a potted form of uh, biography, isn't it? Um, that hadn't occurred to me either. Biography of a place yes. of, of yourself, the oh, writer. Oh, oh autobiography. I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Autobiography. Yeah, yeah, autobiography. Sure, sure. Which means it's subject to uh, all the laws and rules of fiction <laughs> <laughs> and untrustworthy narration. But you don't want to. I mean, you don't want to make something up about a place unless you are like some of those gifted travel writers who make up places <laughs> that don't exist and write about them as if they do. But. Um, you want to somehow get the essence of what happened to you in that place and in the in the weeks or days that you visited it and make it palpable for the reader what can a traveler derive 
from this place? What can a traveler experience in this particular place that he or she will not find around the corner, uh, you know, on on uh, Portola Drive? Uh, I, to that end, I, I love your observation in our artist, an artist about that. When you visit her studio, you realize that Georgia O'Keeffe was a realist. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great observation. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Tell us it, about she, that journey. She, she didn't make up those hills. Actually, that's a very, that's a short piece that I did for the New York Times travel section. So, very practical mm-hmm. uh, kind of piece. But um, I was deeply involved in that story because I wrote a novel uh, based on the life of uh, an American woman painter. Um, based largely on on uh, biographical information that I had about O'Keefe. And, uh, and so I knew something about the person who lived in that place and uh, did, a, as I say, a kind of practical piece about it for the New York Times. Here is where she lived. This is what you'll see when you visit it. This is how to get there. Um, and, you know, the the Times, the little, little sidebar that you get in a New York Times piece, and this is where you might want to eat dinner or stay when you're making this visit to O'Keeffe's home place. But you can't avoid uh, putting yourself into her story and trying to get the feel of it and, and, and bring that out, bring that up to the surface so you can uh, bring that back to the reader. I mean, when I saw the place, um, you know, I found it interesting and then the the moment for me in that in that piece is when I looked through the window of her bedroom and saw the hills and outside it and looked on the wall and there there was this little sculpture of a of a, a, a hand a Buddhist hand coming sculpted as if it were coming out of the wall and somehow that to me was the essence of it, that hand that have been the hand that wielded those brushes that view which those eyes that made those amazing flower paintings and and uh, arroyos and and hills looked out and saw that landscape somehow hand and eye coordination that's what a painter needs and it seems to me that was the essence of her as an artist for me the the center portion of this book is just really wonderful and as this is the the kind of thing that i absolutely did not expect to encounter in, mm-hmm. in a travel book uh give us an idea of these three pieces you wrote for the san diego times and, and that seems like that's a big assignment for you as a writer wasn't yeah, it? the san diego reader which san is diego their, their their weekly reader uh which i is one of the most successful weekly uh giveaways in the, in the country hmm. um hundreds of pages because of all the advertisements that they run. And so it requires, like like the old L.A. Times, a paper that had so many advertisements, it re- needed a lot of writing in between them. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's how the detective story got started. The editor of Blackwell's magazine went to Poe and said, Mr. Poe, I have all these advertisements and I need to suggest we're a serious publication. Can you write me some stories that I can put in between the advertisements? And that's how Poe started writing his detective stories. In any case, uh, the reader uh, had this wonderful situation where they would invite writers to come to San Diego County, and you, and you could focus on any subject at all that you were interested in. You wanted to write about automobile repair. You wanted to write about fat, high fashion, street fashion, uh, 
Mexican-American food, hotel management, anything, just anything that went on in San Diego County. And they would publish it. So you'd come down there for a couple of weeks, and they put you up in uh, in, an, in, a, in an apartment on, uh, on uh, uh, the island there that... Uh, Oh, the, the, where, where the publisher had this condo and they put you in that condo and you could do anything you wanted as long as it pertained to um, something that was going on in San Diego County. So I wrote about the border. Uh, you know, I had lived in Mexico years before, fascinated by the border, how life changes once you how, cross that border. And so I did these three pieces, which... Uh, I really didn't see so much as travel writing as, as you know, kind of classical reportage, mm-hmm. in, impressionistic investigative journalism. I think that's a great description. They are very impressionistic. And I lo- love the, the persona that you take on in, in the first one, uh, The Pilgrim. Mm, yeah, that's, this, the, that's the piece about the uh, San Isidro border crossing, which is maybe the busiest border crossing in the world. I haven't looked at the statistics lately, but when I was there, I think it was number one. Um, just millions of souls crossing back and forth over that line, over that border, over the course of uh, a year. So I spent uh, more than a week of nights at the border crossing and uh, did a composite of of mostly a one night. And uh, I worked with the border guards. I stood in those booths. And you were used to that, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> right, because as a, right, just out of college I worked. You're right. I worked as a toll taker on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> yes, that booth seemed familiar. Yes. And um, and I you know, ran with detectives who were chasing immigrants, illegal immigrants who had just jumped the border. Um, I you know watched while uh, some of the border patrolmen ri- ripped apart uh, automobiles and found bales of marijuana and packets, bricks of heroin, and people stuffed in. Under the hood of the cars, people stuffed into the trunks, of course. How would you not think you would, wouldn't be caught if you were stuffed into the trunk? But the children stuffed under the, the engine, I mean, just extraordinary. Um, and I worked with the dogs, with the, the dogs who were sniffing out. They're people sniffers and then they're drug sniffers. Um, and basically shadowed everybody who worked that that border. And uh, if I call myself the pilgrim, it's because I was not just wandering around, but I was writing about people who were trying to get across that difficult border, as pilgrims sometimes do. It's an interesting style for you. It's not like I think anything I I've read by you. And it's well, it's if closest if anything to to your fiction, but it, it does have the feel of. Of reportage, could you talk about the, the style you created for this piece? Well, yeah, I, I seem to have this uh, aesthetic of um, in those pieces where I just snatch, kind of like snatch and grab. Uh, so when, when I'm writing about the history of the Jews in Mexico, in the in the piece about the border rabbi, uh, the border Methodist minister turned almost rabbi, who. Uh, with the permission of the Bishop of Tijuana, was converting uh, people from Tijuana 
to Judaism by immersing them in the seawater on the beach at Tijuana. Um, an amazing man, an amazing man. And he, he, he built uh, a little uh, Jewish temple in the poorest section of Tijuana, fed people a couple of meals a day, and uh, practiced the kind of charity that you know the best religious people do. But uh, and I, I guess he felt that this was his way of uh, paying the world back for a career that he had as a very successful businessman. He'd always been interested in the Bible, and he studied Bible with various uh, pastors and became a Methodist minister, went to the seminary, became a Methodist minister, but then he started studying with at the Rabbinical Institute in, in Los Angeles, and um, he became everything that you needed to do, he, he accomplished, except ordaining, uh, ordainment by the rabbinical board in L.A. Um, and he went to Tijuana and set up this temple. And um, so I, I was fascinated with him. And uh, I had written some articles before about Jews in, in um, Mexico City. And uh, so I knew a little bit about the history of the Jews in Mexico, but nothing like what I found out when I started doing research for this piece. Um, and so the piece was very rich historically for me. So mm -hmm. I don't do this long sequence in that in that piece about the history of Jews in Mexico, and I, and I discovered that there there was uh, in the annals of the Inquisition of Mexico uh, there is a, a line about the first Jew who was uh, burned at the stake, and a man named Hernando Alonso, and. Uh, so I wrote a narrative based on that one-line entry in the annals of the Mexican Inquisition. And I also I cannibalized that uh, nonfiction piece, the, the travel piece, or the investigative journalism piece, as, as whatever you want to call it, uh, and made a story called Hernando Alonso also uh, that appeared in a story collection of mine. So, uh, you know, Research can go one way or it can go another, sometimes both ways, <laughs> into fiction or, or nonfiction. Um, so I pulled a lot of material, to answer your question, um, in a brief way. I pulled a lot of material about uh, the subject of this man's uh, work with uh, in, in his temple in Tijuana from Mexican history. Um, and, and as I was writing about this little se in this little sequence about the history of the Jews in Mexico, I pulled a, a sequence out of a Malcolm Lowry novel, Under the Volcano, where there, there's a, 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 a paragraph or two of reference to Mexican anti-Semitism during the rise of the Nazis. And uh, so I, I will go to various sources and pull material out of history, out of the newspapers, out of novels out of my own eyewitness research and out of, uh, you know, articles, documents that other people write. We'll get back to my conversation with uh, Alan Chews in just a moment. Support for the Agony Column comes from... Um, 
Good Times, Good Times editorial focuses on news, arts, entertainment, and stories of local interest that reflect the voice and spirit of the community. Good Times distributes 45,000 papers weekly in Santa Cruz County, online at gtweekly.com. Support for KUSP comes from Whole Foods Mark on Capitola, opening July 29th on 41st Avenue. Whole Foods Market Capitola will feature over 100 Santa Cruz County farmers and producers supporting sustainable agriculture and natural foods locally. Whole Foods Market on Capitola opening next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Support for the Agony Column is by the Capitola Book Cafe. Author S.G. Brown discusses his book, Breathers, A Lover's Lament, Monday, August 4th, 7.30 at Capitola Book Cafe. Details at 462-4415. Now we'll get back to my conversation with Alan Chews. Alan, one of the things that, that I, I loved your piece about uh, a ballet. Uh, and that's the piece that uh, takes the uh, collection takes its title from. Uh, I was told I've been told by many people many times that I should go to Bali. I will tell you again. I'll be the person to say that again to you. You must go to Bali. Um, you must go to Bali. <laughs> I'll say it one more time. You must go to Bali. I have never. Hang on for just a second, Alan. We're having a little problem with your microphone here. Now let's try it. I'll say it again. You must go to Bali. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> In fact, it's uh, one of the most extraordinary places on earth. It's uh, It brought things out in me that I didn't know existed. Uh, good things, I hope. It's um, a kind of place that, um, you know, historically, it's it's really an anomaly because it's a little... Uh, it's not just uh, a, a geographical island. It's a it's a little um, theological island. It's a Hindu island in the middle of the great Indonesian um, Muslim archipelago. And uh, the Balinese fought their wars against the invading Hin- uh, Islamic uh, kings. From who came in from Malaysia and uh, occupied the main islands of Indonesia. And they carved out this stronghold of their brand of Hinduism. As I say, in the middle of this Islamic archipelago. And, um, and so this reinforced their vision of the world as uh, filled with many spirits uh, as opposed to the the uh, my, according to my understanding of Islam, you know, there's Allah, and there are a few jinns floating around, kind of like you know, the way Christians sometimes believe in angel, angels. But every place in the Balinese uh, countryside is filled with with spirits. It's uh, it's Hindu, but it's also kind of uh, Western pantheists' uh, paradise. There are river spirits and spirits and trees and and everybody sets out little offerings to the spirits. Uh, the storekeepers put these offerings in front of their 
uh, bargain shirt sales. And, <laughs> really? And and you can't go, you know, a tenth of a mile along a highway without seeing a little altar or, or offering constructed out of, mostly constructed out of uh, uh, palm leaves and, and with flowers in the center. And, and, uh, and people do connect themselves to the spirit world in that fashion. And I, I just found it so um, interesting, and not just interesting, but finally I crossed over the line and, and felt that spirit world moving in me while I was there. And maybe at least moving in me uh, enough to write this piece. Uh, can I read, I'll just read the opening of a trance after breakfast? Yeah, I'd love to. I love the okay. opening. It's striking. Okay. A little after nine, on a beautiful August morning, after our breakfast of fresh papaya and astringent lemon ginger tea on a nearby hotel balcony, a man just about ten feet in front of me, one of eight men in a long row, took a dagger by the hilt with both hands and plunged it into his chest just above his heart. <laughs> if you want to know what happens after that, you have to buy the book or at least come to the bookstore cafe because I think I'll read this piece. All right, I'll read the next line. The next line is, except the point didn't puncture his flesh. Or I'll read one more line. He tried and tried, worked it and worked it, while I sat squirming, I have to say, nearly writhing in my front row seat at the small outdoor pavilion. A gamelan orchestra, all 16 players made their otherworldly music. A skein of pongs and chongs they beat out with fancy hammers on their marimba-like instruments, with a few flutes accompanying and a master gong that set the major intervals with austere reverberating bongs, which taken together sound something like the Lionel Hampton Orchestra on LSD, while the front line of Chris dancers, as they're called after the name of their daggers, the Chris knife, kept on trying to penetrate their chests to no avail. It's travel writing, it's magic realism. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> but this is what I saw. Oh, that, that's why it's magic. We saw the magic of reality. Uh -huh. and there you go. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's part of the, the Balinese uh, experience. Just uh, such a singular place filled with such a multiplicity of of uh, life and vitality. Really extraordinary. And just one of the most beautiful places on Earth, except for a lot of the garbage piled in the streets in Ubud. But then, you know, the garbage and the beauty go together, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's spirit and spirits in the garbage, too, I'm sure. <laughs> or maybe not the ones you want to encounter in the spirit world. Right. Though. Good point. <laughs> uh you you took a there's a really fascinating I think a style piece uh, thirty five passages over water that's really interesting tell us what inspired that and, and maybe read us a bit of that too I thought that was really an interesting piece that piece came about uh, because of a ferry ride that um, my wife and I took when we were visiting New Zealand we took the ferry <clears throat> excuse me we took the ferry from the harbor uh, in Wellington which is on uh, the southernmost point of New Zealand's North Island, to uh, across the, uh, the uh, connecting Cook Strait that, that connects the, the 
the Arabian Sea and the, and the South Pacific to the northernmost point on the South Island of New Zealand. And while, it, it, again, one of these uh, passages over water that you hear about if you throw the I Ching um, and that you recognize are present in some of the greatest uh, literature we know, um, Moses born out of the bulrushes, uh, right, so he comes out of water, which inspires the uh, the New Testament writers to use that same myth and have Jesus born in a manger, right? That mm-hmm. straw, that's part of the bulrushes. That's mm-hmm. a touch of that myth. Um, Dracula arriving to London on the Demeter. There, there you go, <laughs> to go from the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, I, mean, I always think of Leonard... Coins, Suzanne, you know, and Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water. Again, that same myth of God connected with water, mm-hmm. change and transformation connected with water, uh, as it is when we were born, right? Um, Daedalus, in, in the opening scene of Ulysses, looks out on the, on the, the ocean, uh, and he says, Ah, the sea, the sea. Thalassa, Thalassa, the sea, the sea, the scrotum-tightening sea. <laughs> the sea is our mother. Right? Uh, so all of these passages over water came to mind as we were making this passage over the Cook Strait. Um, maybe I'll read this opening paragraph. 35 passages over water. One, on board the Arahura, which in Maori means pathway to dawn, the imposing steamer-sized car passenger ferry from Wellington, North Island, New Zealand, to Picton, South Island, New Zealand, this past winter. I don't know that we've been happier, knock on wood, as my dear late mother used to say. The weather was fair, bright sun, and once the large auto and passenger ferry pushed out of Wellington Harbor, all the colorful houses smiling down at us, the facade of an Oceanian Trieste, it churned around the point into the Cook Strait where we met head-on a strong, chill breeze, reminding us of where we found ourselves along the 41st parallel, facing south toward Antarctica, where the waters of the South Pacific rushed to embrace and meld with the waters of the Tasman Sea. And I, I, I was so taken with this wonderful passage over water, which took couple of hours and you know it, it was a beautiful day calm sea uh, we rode up most of the time with the captain in, on the bridge mm. and uh, he said it was, uh, once in 1929 in a big storm the ferry did go down but that was out of the ordinary he said <laughs> <laughs> um, nice to know it's out of the ordinary yeah and, and all of these other uh, trips ferry trips that I had taken in my life came to mind. I mean, I grew up in, in this uh, town in New Jersey, Perth Amboy, New Jersey, which um, has a bridge connecting it to uh, Staten Island, to the borough of Richmond, which is the southernmost part of, of New York City, you know, the fifth of the five boroughs. And uh, you, so you could take the bridge across, but you could walk to the foot of the main street when I was a kid and take the Tottenville Ferry for for a nickel and wow. ride across <laughs> the Arthur Kill, that little body of water that came in from Raritan Bay and flows all up 
between Richmond and the Jersey Shore and then flows into New York Harbor. You could ride the Arthur, uh, the ferry over the Arthur Kill for a nickel to Tottenville and then ride back. And we did that when, you know, when we were eight, nine, ten years old. And then later we became more adventurous and took the rapid transit, we called the rat trap because it was an old train, <laughs> across the length of the borough of Richmond for a quarter. Mm. And then and you got to St. George, the, the town on the northern part of uh, Staten Island. And there you took the ferry across to uh, the southernmost part of Manhattan. I think, you know, so what's that, a 35-cent trip from darkest Jersey to brightest New York? Wow. <laughs> you know, by the time we were adventurous teenagers, we'd take, make that trip. We'd hitchhike across uh, on Highland Boulevard, which ran the length of the island. To that ferry to to uh, to New York and um, and then we'd walk up, you know, hundreds of blocks all across Manhattan. I mean, that's. I think there's a piece in um, in the New York Times the other day about how Manhattanites are much healthier than most city dwellers because they walk everywhere. Because we, they can. Yeah, you can get somewhere walking in Manhattan. Right, but in any case, uh, you can get somewhere riding ferries. Mm. Um, I, so I collected all these ferry rides that I'd taken and a couple of transatlantic crossings that I made after I graduated from college mm -hmm. and did a kind of countdown from 35 down to 1, although I number it 1 through 35 because I go backward in time in this piece. And um, Could you read the final, like the final half page or so? Well, okay. If it doesn't... A giveaway. I don't think it gives away. I think. Okay. I mentioned that. Well, I don't know where to start. It, it, okay. 25. In the late 1930s, oh, wait a minute, tw 23. In the early morning of January 23rd, 1940, I swam out of my mother's womb and made landfall in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. <laughs> 24. Back and forth on the Weehawken Ferry. My father traveled on his way from Brooklyn to Perth Amboy, courting my mother. 25. In the late 1930s, my father boarded a steamer and sailed from Shanghai to San Francisco. From there, he traveled across the continent by train to New York City and lived for a while in Brooklyn with his brother Joe and sister-in-law Sadie and the kids. Some months later, after he had found his own place to live, he met my mother at a dance in Brooklyn. 26. Back and forth on the Weehawken Ferry, my mother traveled to see her cousin Ethel in Brooklyn. That weekend, there would be a dance. She loved the dances. 27. After some months in Hakodate, Hokkaido, Japan, my father sailed to Shanghai and took a job flying in the China Mail Service. 28. My father, having ditched his stalled fighter plane in the Japan Sea, it's a Russian fighter, stood on the floating wing and squinted into the sun as a Japanese freighter approached. 29. As a young girl, my mother, holding her mother's hand almost all the time, rode the small passenger ferry to Tottenville and back again. I turned that into a, into a novella, actually, uh, called Our Ground Time. Here will be brief about her ferry rides back and forth across the, um, the, the Arthur Kill. Here, here's number 30. Her father, that's my mother's father, born in the Russian Pale, made a North Atlantic crossing as a child. 31. 
Her mother was born in New Jersey to a woman who made the North Atlantic crossing from Europe when she was a young bride, fleeing with her husband, who had killed a man in a political argument in their native Romania. 32. Forty days and forty nights. And here's the leap into the, from family myth to culture myth. Forty days and forty nights, Noah sailed his ark across the waters of the flood. 33. The first of our ancestors, a naked fish with bulging eyes and stubby legs, crawled out of the sea, green salt water spilling down its leathery sides, breathed the air, touched land, returned, and returned again to breathe again. 34. Large land masses shifted, swayed, reshaped, and reformed for a million, million years. 35. And the Lord moved upon the face of the waters and separated them upon the earth and saw that it was good. Alan Chews. We'll be back with my conversation with Alan Chews in a moment, reading from his new book, A Tramps After Breakfast. Thanks, Alan. My pleasure. UC Santa Cruz and the Friends of Cowell Lime Works Historic District announce a conference on the history of the lime and lime making in California, including 19th century structures on the UCSC campus that were recently added to the National Register of Historic Places. The conference on Saturday and Sunday, August 8th and 9th, features lectures, demonstrations, exhibits, and a guided tour of historic buildings and lime kilns. Information is available at limeworks.ucsc.edu. You're listening to the Agony Column. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. With me in the studio is Alan Shoes. We'll get back to that conversation in just a moment. Alan, uh, you've been recently just published three enormous, ginormous books of uh, textbooks, college textbooks. You are now in charge of the canon of United States literature. <laughs> Tell us about these three books, um, how they came to pass, and it's quite an it's quite an adventure writing textbooks, isn't it? Yeah, it's another kind of journey. <laughs> <laughs> Five and a half years worth of work with my uh, co-author Nicholas Del Banco, my novelist friend, and uh, we go from Homer to. Uh, Amy Hempel. Um, That's a journey. <laughs> <laughs> All part of the same world of, of uh, story making. Um, it, it's in three volumes, fiction, poetry, and drama. We, we did fiction first um, and then poetry, and now drama's just come out of the printers. And uh, you know, we're trying to um, present literature as we know it, as we understand it, in such a way that will help uh, incoming college freshmen to uh, make some sense out of their courses in reading and writing. Um, so as as uh, fiction writers and essayists, Del Banco and I uh, try to elevate the the element of craft to, to the point where students can recognize certain elements run th running through uh, whether it's prose narrative or poetry or drama, and they can recognize that they can use these elements to order their own thinking about um, the works they read and also their own writing. Uh, I thought they were, 
as a guy who went to college back in the days when they gave you Norton anthologies with tissue-thin paper that mm-hmm. looked kind of like Bibles and where every page yeah. had maximum amount of black print on white pit paper, these are very different looking, aren't well, they? Those, those textbooks you describe are still around. They are what most people use. And what we've done is uh, what we think is really revolutionized the presentation of the history of, uh, of literature by uh, turning our volumes... Well, they look like uh, uh, issues, large issues of Harper's Magazine. Four-color illustrations, uh, a lot of wonderful design elements, and, and the texts are readable in a way that they're not truly readable, except unless you're a, a Hasidic scholar. <laughs> uh, I don't think there are too many 18-year-olds who come to college who are ready to just pick up those monster volumes, let alone read the uh, the dark print on the very small dark print on those uh, white pages. One thing that that interests me uh, about this is you include a lot of uh, other elements beyond just the text. Mm-hmm. There, there's examples of criticism. I, I was pleased and surprised to see that in an American textbook you get a, a big passage, a chunk of uh, Marxist uh, literary criticism. Yeah, and feminist literary criticism and uh, other various other approaches to literary study. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a little jiffy a little jiffy course in how to approach literary texts in, mm-hmm. in, in a way, uh, in a serious way, that will give, we hope, instructors the uh, the uh, means and uh, ammunition to show students that it, you don't just uh, look at the story and figure it out without knowing, uh, without having any tools. And, and there are lots of uh, online interviews with the, the authors. That's pretty remarkable, the people that you got to talk to. Yeah, we we um, produced a what I, I think is a kind of major uh, series about contemporary writers and and the reading of contemporary fiction, poetry, and drama. There are th- three dozen video interviews uh, that come along with this, this these three volumes, uh, in which uh, a number of the writers in each mode, fiction, poetry, and drama, talk about the writing of the particular selection of theirs that we include and talk about the importance of reading in their own lives and um, the importance of various aspects of technique and how uh, reading and writing has affected them as, as, as human beings, as American citizens, as family members, as friends, as, as human beings. Um, I think one of, what may well be John Updike's last interview is is in there talking about his classic story A and P, uh, talking about writing that story um, some sixty years ago, almost now, or, or sorry, fifty years ago, and um, and then we have some you know really hip contemporary writers, Amy Bender, Amy Hempel, um, and everybody in between, uh, T C Boyle and uh, Amy Tan. Um, a, a lot of writers whom people know and a lot of writers whom people should know. Um, William Kittredge, uh, Dagoberto Gilb, um, who are uh, very well known in Texas and the West, but mm-hmm. maybe not in Ohio or South Florida. And uh, people should know them. And and we do the same thing with the poets. Uh, Robert Hass, uh, 
the California poet mm-hmm. who was poet laureate, or reading his poem Meditation at Lagunitas and talking about how he came to write it and um, various elements associated with the experiences that he writes about in that poem, speaking directly to the students. Um, Amy Tan went so far as to, uh, in her, uh, when we interviewed her in front of the camera, she drew a little stick figure, of a, of two stick figures, a pair of students, and had the cameraman tape them under the lens of the camera <laughs> right. so she could speak directly to them. Um, and uh, we had some actors and actresses. Uh, Marion Seldes, who's one of the great character actors on the, the American stage now, um, she just dove into this, uh, talking about her work, reading Edward Albee and playing Edward Albee plays, and um, spoke directly to the students in, in that wonderful diva-like uh, manner that she has. Darling, she said, this is what it's like to be in a play. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of remarkable. That's a that's a, a great experience for students. To, it's a direct connection to the literature as opposed to the kind of third-hand mm-hmm. read this and write something about it sensible. Yeah, it's, um, it's an approach that uh, is honored uh, more in the breach than in the practice, which is, you know, this is great literature. You should know it. And, and, and then the students are basically not given any practical way of getting into the reading of it. Um, so we have the poet on hand to say, look, <laughs> um, this is how I came to write this poem, and this is why I wrote it in the way that I did. And... Um, it's really important to me that you get to see this part of it and this part of it. Um, and, and you have Dagoberto Gilb, the, the the Chicano story writer and novelist, who's uh, you know started out working in the building trades before starting, he was writing fiction, talked about how uh, estranged and alienated he was from reading and let alone from literature when when he was a, a young guy uh, coming up in the world and and talks about how important reading became to him um, kind of like um, a tough love uh, interview that one is where he said you guys you better understand that you need to read or you're going to end up badly <laughs> <laughs> so it ranges from that to you know the somewhat uh, esoteric ramblings of um, you know some of the more um, obscure but people should be better known American fiction writers and, and in drama we have an Edward Albee interview and um we we couldn't get Shakespeare. He <laughs> no. wouldn't answer our emails. So we have a, a Shakespearean from the University of Michigan, a man named Ralph Williams, talking about Shakespeare. And again, in that same problematic uh, realm, Sophocles would not answer our text messages. So we have one of the one of the great classical scholars uh, alive, uh, Gregory Nagy, who was chairman of the classics department at Harvard and. Now, director of the Center for Hellenic Studies uh, in Washington, D.C., talking about a day in the life of a production of Oedipus Rex in Athens, in classical Athens. And uh, he created this wonderful portrait of Sophocles as, uh, you know, the who, who not only wrote the play, but directed the play, acted, sometimes acted in the play, wrote the music for the play, directed the chorus, uh, 
as a kind of uh, Mick Jagger of all trades. <laughs> yes. And uh, just an extraordinary uh, uh, half hour of tape that takes you into the heart of Athens at that time and, and helps you to see the play in a way that you couldn't before. And we want the students to see these plays on, you know, on the stage of their imaginations. So we help you help them produce these plays in their minds. Now, a lot of the authors that you uh, treat in this book, um, in these textbooks, have probably been nominated for the National Book Award. You're judging the National Book Awards this year. Could you talk about that process? And, and uh, how many judges are there? There are five judges. Five judges. Yeah. And I think it's public knowledge that it's uh, Charles Johnson, the novelist, um, um, Jennifer Egan, Lydia Millet, uh, Juno Diaz, and me. And um, the process is um, we get about 300 books, and we we read them and we talk about them amongst ourselves. Email is a tremendous help. And uh, we'll, I think our deadline for the, a short list is coming up in about a month, and then we'll get an even shorter list, f five finalists, and the day of the awards, which is November 18th uh, in uh, New York City, we'll meet for lunch and decide then and there <laughs> who the winner is. Uh, so that's the process. Um, you know, we're, we're not supposed to talk about the interior uh, debates and such. Um, although if I were following my taste in such matters, I would notice what books I'm reviewing and what books I'm not <laughs> reviewing. <laughs> I mean, that's just... Uh, evidence that's out there. Not that anything I like is going to be the winner because there are four other judges, but at least my taste is pretty well known. Um, it, it, it interests me uh, that you have, uh, I think, a, a kind of a, a, a youngish so, so selection of, of uh, people on, on this jury. How, how, who, how does the jury get chosen? Um, the uh, There's a committee of um, of, of the pub, made up of publishing industry executives, and they have a chair, and he um, selects people. Well, let's talk about some of the books you've been reviewing, uh, some of the books you've been looking at. Um, one that you and I talked about recently uh, that I think a lot of people might might enjoy is Daniel Silva's latest, The Defector. Yeah, no, I guarantee you that's not going to win the National Book Award. <laughs> I don't think so either, but... Uh, but uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. It's very intense. Um, you know, he's got this character, Gabriel Alon, who um, is uh, an Israeli spy, but also an art restorer, and he much prefers restoring paintings to spying and killing enemies of Israel, but... <laughs> Sometimes he does that. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in this new book, The Defector, he's uh, trying to get back this Russian whom he helped defect, this Russian spy whom he helped defect, when the spy has been um, kidnapped by a Russian oligarch for various reasons that will become known early in the novel. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. You know, I read spy thrillers and science fiction um, in between uh, the truly grave and serious books. <laughs> Um, not that they can't be that way in themselves. Uh, you know, Luc Carré is a pretty good writer. Um, it's kind of like the sorbet but, you know, between various courses at a, at a banquet. But I love thrillers. I love science fiction. And um, 
I don't know that I could be a reader without them. I mean, that's how I started reading. I started reading science fiction, sea stories, and uh, that's how I came to be reading still today. Well, reading is fun and, and can be fun, and, and it can also be fun to, to, to dip into something more more literary. And another book that we recently talked about was Colin McCann, Let the Great World Spin, and that's certainly on the more literary side. Oh, yeah. So, But it's a wonderful, deeply serious, and at the same time beautifully composed and really at sprightly at heart uh, novel about New York in 1974 when Philippe Petit, man on wire, is making his walk between the towers of the, alas, uh, late uh, World Trade Center. You know, I read a uh, interview with uh, McCann where he said he considered changing uh, reality to have Petit fall. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would have certainly changed you know, the analogy when, of the book, huh? Yes, I mean the you know. You go through many drafts when you're writing mm. fiction. Uh, that's why I prefer, when it comes to the stories of Genesis, I prefer the uh, myth of the the Popol Vuh, the myth of the Kiche Mayans, because their gods don't just make the world once. Their gods make the world about five or six times because they don't like the earlier versions. <laughs> They're <laughs> yeah. revisers, eh? Yeah, they, make, they create uh, living beings out of mud, and the rain washes them away, and they make living beings out of sticks and they get burned in a fire and they then they make it's like the three little pigs as gods <laughs> then they create jaguars and the jaguars tear up the world and finally they get to human beings so you know that's the way the novelist works yeah. um, so who you know I, i'm amazed that mccann let out that news from his workshop but you know he's certainly allowed to do that um pulling the curtain aside and showing you some of the the tricks that didn't work. <laughs> but it, 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 coming back to his book, um, Petit does not fall in his book. Petit takes this high-wire walk. It's really ac across the length of the, the, the narrative of this novel. And in between, you get to meet priests working with the poor, with downtrodden people, with prostitutes, and, and uh, 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 you know, judges and women who have lost their... Uh, children in the war in Vietnam and uh, a wonderful kind of cross-section of New York and, and a lot of it infused with uh, McCann who's an Irish-born American citizen now, um, infused with a lot of Blarney that en enhances the New York experience. Well, he he also includes some uh, blue box proto-hackers and I remember the, that um, the the early blue box uh, phone hackers. That was when I was in high school, and I was mm -hmm. like figuring out how to you know get free phone calls. Yeah. And I, that blue box stuff really interested me. Yeah, that's kind of blown up in our faces. <laughs> it hasn't finished blowing up. No. Uh, the, no. the the chronicle says, suggests today that uh, cyber war will be our next uh, our next nine uh, eleven. Now you have another book here. Oh, um, yeah, Secret Sun by Leila Lalami. Uh, she's uh, a Moroccan-born uh, novelist who emigrated here some years ago. And it, this is a pretty terrific, uh, straightforward, naturalistic novel about a, a young Moroccan uh, college student who discovers that his mother had an affair uh, and that and the, his father is not the dead mytho mythological person he thought he was, but his father's alive and well, working as a businessman in, in, um, in uh, Morocco. So... Uh, I, I would recommend that. I like that a lot. 
what else do I have on hand here? Oh, I just finished reading the new Joyce Carol Oates, which is uh, Oates is yet another version of Crime and Punishment. Mm. Really quite intense and terrific. And uh, the new uh, Yale Doctorow, which... Uh, Homer and Langley? Homer and Langley, based on the lives of the Collier brothers, the uh, famous New York City hoarders who uh, collected a cent- almost a century's worth of newspapers in their apartment. I've um, been accused of that. <laughs> you have to live a lot longer. Do, do you have a Model A Ford in your dining room, though? No, not yet. They did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. That's that's coming out in September. Um, but I, you know, if I were going to a bookstore, um, I would I would look for Colin McCann's "Let the Great World Spin" and uh, the the Secret Son by Leila Lalami. And the defector for for a good spy novel, and also uh, the girl who played with fire, the second uh, volume in that wonderful uh, Steve Larson story. Steve, Steve Larson, you know, who started with uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, and she continues her her life of uh, research and investigation, uh, driven by a past that gets revealed in the second volume. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, she really kind of took over my life. Um, to me, she's as wonderful a character. I mean, it's heresy to say it, but I like her as much as I like Emma Bovary. Now, uh, another novel that I find myself uh, uh, thinking about again and again is uh, Warren Fay's Fragment. Mm-hmm. I can return to that island and see all those really strange critters. A lot of fun. Yes, Spiders that are as big as uh, saber-toothed tigers and... Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that book. Uh, poisonous plants. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating uh, 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 pretense on, on based on this idea of parallel evolution, yeah. and and the writer is is fairly ruthless in terms of eliminating his character. He seems to know his biology, or at least he convinces you that he does. And in the you know in the wake of the the death of Michael Crichton, you know, you know he may well may well be the heir to that you know to that legacy, and. and uh, you also liked, uh, I know, uh, Road Dogs, the latest Elmore Leonard. Yeah, oh, that you, was a lot of fun. You can't go wrong with Elmore Leonard, Ken. Le- Leonard has, you know, pitch-perfect dialogue, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to read. Now, um, uh, you'll be appearing uh, Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. at Capitola Book Cafe yes, to sir. talk about A Trance After Breakfast. And uh, so maybe can you give us one more, a one-minute reading from there? Yes, this is um, an essay about uh, my love for the Pacific. Americans, Russians, Patagonians, Inuit, Hawaiians, and Hindus, we all share an inclination toward water. Those who live inland, as Herman Melville has written, are drawn to creeks and follow them on an eventual path to the sea. I know that for me, an Easterner, a Jersey boy, born near the water's edge, the Raritan River, where it flows into Raritan Bay, which feeds into the Atlantic around the tip of Staten Island. Our two national oceans have made a great difference in my life. The sand, the water there at the bay's edge, sometimes salt, sometimes fresh, depending on the tide and river currents, whetted my appetite for more. I'll always remember the best early days near the Atlantic. But then I go to express... Uh, heresy for an Easterner. 
my seduction by the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Alan Chews. His new book is A Trance After Breakfast. He'll be appearing at the Capitola Book Cafe Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Thank you for joining me, Alan. A great pleasure, Rick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.